0: This is Bad Boys at the Eye, with your hosts, Mike Pate and Keith Black Trudeau. That's it, baby, and a foul! Hey, y'all put it in the front page, back page, middle page, wherever headliners, call on us, so and we will win game two. Good pick, you We will win game two. The game's over, and the Pistons have won the world championship! Welcome back to Bad Boys and Beyond with your host Mike Payton and Keith Black Trudeau. We are back. We we took a week off because uh I sounded like uh Nick Nulty in Blue Chips. It was that bad. I, it was like I had swallowed gravel. Uh and Keith Keith had some, some automobile incidents. So I'm happy that uh that we're back. And uh we will try not to ever leave you again. Uh today. We're going to be talking about something a little bit different. We came up with this idea of, you know, we we do these episodes on, on players, on their full careers. And then, you know, there's these guys that just kind of came into Detroit for like one year, maybe a year and a half, had a good season and then moved on. And it's just you can't really get a whole episode out of them. So we decided to do one episode that features uh many stories on those guys and uh and and we're calling it our one hit wonder episode and and actually sounds like we're going to do more than one of these but this will be the first one i'm looking forward to getting into it i i really like this idea keith
1: no you you should you're the one that came up with it
0: oh okay well hey you know (laughs) smart guy you know what can i say uh before we before we get into that though i uh did you happen to see Quincy Isaiah on the Rich Eisen show the other day?
1: I did not. Please fill me in.
0: Okay, Quincy Isaiah, who plays Magic Johnson in Winning Time, great, uh, great
1: season two so far. By yeah, the way. this
0: is. I'm having a. You know, I actually talked to Jeff Perlman yesterday, who wrote the book. Uh, super weird. Like he actually uh reached out to me to ask for advice on being a beat writer and the only thing i could think is dude you're jeff perlman what are you yeah. doing uh it, it was great i was happy to 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 give him that advice and it was awesome and i told him i love the show and and uh, but anyways uh quincy isaiah who plays Magic johnson winning time was on the rich eisen show quincy is also a uh michigan native from muskegon and he was asked by Rich Eisen to go over the Detroit Lions schedule. And what what do you think? Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Quincy came back uh, with record wise.
1: See, I don't know if he's a, a Lions fan or not. I just oh, all yes. I know about him. Okay, yeah. so I'm gonna say 14 and three or something absurd.
0: No, 13 and four. He went with 13 and four. <laughs> It's pretty good. I love it. If they go thirteen and four, man, thank you, Quincy uh, Isaiah. <laughs>
1: well, and I can speak from personal experience. Lions fan just lions fans just cannot handle hope. <laughs> nice. you, we are just full of despair our entire lives, and once we see just a glimmer of light, it it, it looks like the sun to us. <laughs> with, with any any little uh, any little glimmer of hope, and it's God, this might actually be our year. Look, I you're you are the uh, person that covers the detroit lions i i am just a humble fan when it comes to football uh, i i don't i, I don't follow it or, or love the history of the game like i do with basketball but i, I am very encouraged uh, with everything the, the detroit lions organization has done over the past few years i i am just i'm looking forward to this season with some guarded optimism because the last time they won their division uh I was 11 years old. I am 41 now. So <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of experience uh, first-hand experience with success when it comes to the Lions, but I I'm w- very willing to be happy.
0: <laughs> well, we'll see what happens. I mean, I you know, I I've covered this team for 10 years and I can tell you that this is uh already the best team I've I've seen them have on the field. So we'll we'll see where it goes once everything gets going, but uh, I think optimism is is fine to be had at this moment but yes hopium is what uh, Sean Belegian used to call it it's uh there's it, like something that happens to us Lions fans when we get hope we get it's kind of like a high it's a little yeah. bit too much yeah start making bad decisions like getting a tattoo with the lombardi trophy on your arm or something Yeah, you know, like there's people that do it every year i don't know i never understood it even if they do win it's, why why do you want that <laughs> Yeah. Uh, But yeah, that's, that's what that, yeah, it is what it is, but that's all I've got for, for our banter today. Uh, Do you want to, you want to jump into it? You like, you go, you do one player and I'll do the other and we'll discuss and discuss and do it that way.
1: Yeah, sure. However you want to do it. Let's just keep going. Like I said, when I first got into this, I don't think I realized just how many good uh, one in uh, one hit wonder candidates uh, we would have. So I, I am thinking we're going to spread this out into two episodes, one now and one into, into the not too distant future. Uh, so yeah, let's just, you go and I go, uh, we'll make a whole episode out of it and we'll do it again next time.
0: All right. Well, Keith, go ahead and start us off. Uh, I'm probably in the 1940s at some point. I I don't know. Uh, when <laughs> oh, they're the Zollner, Zollner oh, Pistons. Uh, oh, this one.
1: I cannot wait to do this one. Uh, this is one of my favorite, uh, infamous players in, in the history of the NBA. I right, Flashback to 1950. Uh, the Fort Wayne Pistons uh, with, with the 8th pick in the in the 1950 draft select a very athletic high scoring small forward out of Stanford AEU legend uh, by the name of George Yardley. And unfortunately we have something called the Korean War that, that tel- is also tipping off in 1950. So George has to leave the NBA without ever playing a game for several years. He has to serve uh, overseas for the Navy uh, during the Korean war. Uh, he comes back in 1953. He's ready to, to get in and start playing, but here's the problem. The Pistons with the fourth pick in the 1953 draft have selected yet another small forward, uh, a 6'6 six, uh, small forward out of Columbia by the name of Jack Malinas. And George Yardley comes in. Uh, Molinas is not signed at that point. He's holding out for, for a little extra cash. Uh, Yardley makes his very much awaited debut for the Fort Wayne Pistons. Uh, gets injured. His, his messes up his elbow a little bit. And a week later, uh, Jack Molinas signs. And Jack Molinas comes right in and takes George Yardley's starting position. Now, uh, Jack Molinas... Uh, Certainly not the athlete, uh, the pure athlete that George Yardley was. I know everyone's going to look at George Yardley's picture. It's one of the uh, Pistons Twitter's pastimes is looking at George Yardley's picture because he looks like a goofy uh, third-grade science teacher uh, with like three hairs on his head and say, oh, see, that's the level of athlete they had in the 1950s. Not realizing that George Yardley was an NBA-caliber athlete probably even today, he, he, maybe he might be a mediocre athlete today, but he would still be an NBA athlete. Uh, he, he had that kind of fluidity to his game. He was a, a forerunner in that regard, but this is not about George Ardley. We will get a whole episode on him later. This is about Jack Molinas. So Jack Molinas signs one week into the season, uh, hits the ground running, takes George Ardley's job from him, uh, plays exceptionally well, uh, He was all. If you look at his stats, he was only averaging 12, 13 points a game. But keep in mind, this is before the shot clock. So you had whole NBA teams that were averaging like 70 points. Like it was very much a snail's pace game. So 12 was actually quite a bit. And some of his notable performances he had 24 points uh, against the Syracuse Nationals, uh, 22 against the Hawks. Uh, He had probably his best, the best game that he participated in was uh, he had 17 in a blowout win at the against George Mikan and the Minneapolis Lakers. And it looks like his career is about to hit a uh, nosedive. I want to say in December he gets drafted uh, by the Army to participate in the Korean War, much like George Yardley. But here's the twist. Because he is – I remember I said uh, Jack Molinas is 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, uh, Yardley was only about 6'5". Uh, Molinas was half an inch too tall to fit the qualifications to serve in the army. So they spit him right back out to the Pistons. He didn't have to serve. So he comes right back and he plays ex- exceptionally well. And he actually is named to the all-star team in uh, January. And here's another twist. Uh, the New York post around the time that he's named to the all-star game comes out with a, a, just a bone crushing uh, report. Uh, about professional basketball players uh, being mixed in with uh, professional gamblers. And Jack Molinas is the centerpiece. And they've got Molinas gambling on NBA games, including the Pistons. Uh, there is no evidence that he ever bet on the Pistons to lose. Uh, he swore up and down that he never participated at point shaving. But, of course, that doesn't matter. The, the NBA, before he ever participates in the All-Star game that he was selected to as a rookie, Uh, The NBA bans him for life. And that is essentially the end of Jack Molinas's could have been a Hall of Fame career after 32 games. And George Yardley takes his job back. And the rest is history with Yardley. Uh, Goes on to be one of the best scorers of his generation. He's in the Hall of Fame right now. Uh, Certainly Piston fans even today know his name. And what happens to Jack Molinas after the NBA bans him? Well, he carves out a career for himself in the uh, Eastern Professional Basketball League. I'm assuming, Mike, that you have never heard of that. Nope. All right. Well, you actually have. Uh, It it evolved into something uh, known as the Continental Basketball Association. Oh, I know that one. It's the CBA. Yes, same league. They just changed the name. Uh, So he has a seven-year career in the EPBL. Uh, he was named MVP of the league in 1956. He was obviously too good for for that league, but that's as uh, carving out uh, a, a meager pay in a minor pro basketball league in the 1950s was just about all he was relegated to. Now, how the rest of Jack Molinus's uh, life goes is is just as uh, just as interesting. He he goes really after he retires <laughs> from basketball. Yep, he he earns a law degree uh, from I think NYU. Uh, he becomes a lawyer and he gets busted once again because being a brilliant person, everyone agrees that Jet Malinos is an incredibly intelligent uh, man. He just had a gambling uh, addiction that he could never kick. So he actually gets Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown, two Hall of Famers, uh, kicked out of college for simply for associating with him and accepting money never mind that they were freshmen at the time freshmen weren't even allowed to play basketball but since molinas was indicted in a gambling scandal for college basketball after he retired and they were associated with him they were essentially banned from the nba now connie hawkins eventually found his way back uh with the uh, phoenix Suns and the la lakers He, he took the nba to court and won uh roger brown not so lucky uh, Roger Brown, uh, because of his association with Jack Molinas, goes down as probably the best professional basketball player never to play a game in the NBA. Uh, he is an ABA legend. He's rightfully in the Hall of Fame uh, for his work with the Indiana Pacers. Uh, but they never they, – they, the NBA actually did allow him back in after the ABA folded, but his career was over by then, uh, unfortunately. But that this is the, uh, the turbulent – the very turbulent uh, – life and career of, of jack molina's
0: look there's there's more there's more to the story oh I yes
1: mean... there, there, there is much more if we want to get into the, the non-basketball aspects if you just want to look up jack molina's in the, wow. uh just google him but yeah there, there's quite a bit there uh but yeah see the, the original uh pistons rookie phenom uh that, that yeah. i'm sure the nba and everybody would like you to to forget
0: he's he was definitely in with the mob and uh yeah he's well, the, more,
1: most likely uh yeah. it was never proven, but most never likely
0: that he's the only guy on this show that's ever been whacked so uh <laughs> <laughs> he, he, that's yeah that's
1: it, that was not proven yeah. either but most likely
0: but yes yeah okay uh well i mean i don't know how you follow that key <laughs> you, you don't uh <laughs> Probably should have saved that. This one has been for the less. Jack Felina's episode. Everybody, we will see
1: you next week. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We have more.
0: Yeah. Uh wow. Wow. What a story, man. We could have did a whole episode on that. Um well uh I've got Orlando Woolrich. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh Orlando is um Orlando played for a long time. He was he was in the NBA for uh for basically the entire eighties and almost the entire nineties. Uh, he, yep. he, you may remember Orlando Woolridge as being, uh, one of Michael Jordan's early teammates. And, uh, actually we, we just sort of talked about Orlando a little bit with Isaiah the other, the other day, or was that Reggie Theus? Uh, same thing. It was Reggie Theus. Yeah. It was Reggie Theus. Uh, but Orlando, uh, it was around for a while, actually played against the Pistons in the 1989 finals. Um, uh, he came off the bench there i you know he, yeah not not a whole lot not there are, a whole lot there are
1: reasons for that which we will get into
0: when he was 33 years old or 32 years old rather he joined the detroit pistons after playing one year in denver which was actually a decent year uh he, he played 53 games for denver and scored 25 points a game uh he did get hurt and wound up missing a lot of that season but he came keep into keep detroit it, go ahead
1: keep it keep in mind those were the Paul that was a, a Paul Westhead team that was basically just trying to outscore for you so they they were scoring like 120 and giving up 130 a game. So yeah. the points were very very cheap on that different team. I'm sorry to interrupt you go on. That's
0: uh, right. He joins the uh, Pistons in 1992 and uh winds up playing 82 games, starts 61 of them and uh has a decent little season, scores 14 points a game. Um you know, it was one of the Pistons' better players on the team that year on a on a team that was not so great. 48 to 34 wound up losing in the uh, first round of the playoffs to the Knicks in three to two. But, uh, you know, this was, uh, God, that, that Jack Molina story was just too good, man. Uh, but Orlando Woolrich, you know, he was the third leading scorer on the team. He would wind up getting traded the next year. So he, he played, he technically played more than one year with the Pistons, but, uh, but, but it wasn't, it wasn't by much. Yep. So, um, I think that his inclusion on this, on this story is, is good for us. Okay. So or, Orlando Woolridge. Yep.
1: Yeah, he was a yeah, six pick by the bulls in 1981. Uh, I just want to go over his, his career prior to the Pistons real quick to give us some context. Uh, spent five years with the bulls averaged 17 points. I mean, that's very respectable uh, for first some context, Orlando Woolridge, Big, small forward. Uh, could play some power forward. 6'8", six, 6'9". Six, uh, super athletic. He was in the dunk contest at least once, maybe twice. Excellent finisher around the rim. And he wasn't just a dunker either. Uh, he, he had excellent footwork. Uh, very good quickness. He could shoot the mid-range probably around out to 16, 17 feet. He was excellent in that radius. It, it, as far as being an ISO scorer, he was one one of the best guys in the league he really was and yet after five years with the bulls he spends two years with the nets averaging 20 and then he spends two years with the lakers averaging an efficient 11 coming off the bench but still effective and then he spends two years with the nuggets averaging 18.3 over two years now this is what i'm getting at someone that can score that efficiently and that effectively keeps bouncing around the league for a reason uh, his defense was terrible. Among all starters and starting forwards in the entire NBA, guys that were starting every game, Orlando might actually be the worst <laughs> of his generation. There's a reason why the Lakers didn't really play him in the finals. There is a reason why he kept bouncing around uh, the league. And by the time he got to the Pistons, his signing really ticked off the veterans for two reasons. Uh, one, because he was the antithesis of everything the bad boys stood for, which was defense first, offense second. And two, because they gave him a lot of – look, he wasn't the highest-paid player on the team, not even close. But the, the fact of the matter was the veterans that had been there had been a part of two championship teams. They were very, very resentful of the fact that they brought in Orlando Woolridge in his contract instead of paying them a little bit more that they felt they deserved. So, like you said – but like you said – Orlando does what he does in '92 for the Pistons. Uh, notable games by him: thirty-four points at Philadelphia, twenty-six uh, in a win against Houston, and uh, Akeem Olajuwon, where he was taking into the basket, and Akeem really couldn't do anything about it. Uh, but when the playoff starts, like you can see the the holes in his game. Uh, his minutes get cut drastically. He is still starting games, but Mark Aguirre is finishing them, and when Mark Aguirre is the preferable guy (laughs) defensively to you, there is probably an issue there, and like you said, uh, he doesn't last a full two seasons with the Pistons. Uh, They kind of remove what they see as a problem by trading him for Alvin Robertson, who was an unbelievable defender. Uh, It helps them a little bit, but there are a lot of Piston fans that remember 1992 and just do not look back fondly on the Orlando Woolridge uh, acquisition, even though, you know, for the 18th time, he, he did score the ball extremely well, even in Detroit. And they did need that at the time because they had a lot of old guys, uh, that weren't creating shots as effectively as they used to. Okay. So we are going to flashback once again, not, not back to the 1950s, but to the 1960s, a, uh, 6'7 wing uh, out of Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, by the name of Terry Disginger. And Terry Disginger comes into the league, kind of sets it on fire, really. Uh, he's drafted by the uh, Baltimore Bullets in, fr- from 1963 to 1965. Uh, he was an all-star just about every year. Uh, he was averaging 23 points, eight rebounds. He was seen as a as a very promising, pretty good, but he wasn't seen as a superstar, but he he was an all-star caliber wing. And that gets the attention of the Pistons. And the, the, the Pistons very much want him on their team to, to pair with Dave DeBuscher, who is their young power forward. But here's the problem: the Pistons gave up entirely too much. Uh, in 1964, the Pistons acquired Terry Dischinger for uh, the, the low, low price of future Hall of Famer Bailey uh, Bailey Howell, uh, Wally Jones, who went on to be a the starting point guard for Will Ch- uh, Will Chamberlain's 68-win uh, 76ers team that won the championship, and Don Ole, who was just as young as Terry Dischinger, uh, and also an all-star shooting guard. He uh, this was a draft day trade on 1964. Wally Jones never actually plays for the Pistons. They drafted him and then worked him into the trade. And it was seen even at the time as a massive overpay, even for, for Bailey Howell who had already established himself as a star in the league. Uh, that swap alone would have seemed unfair, but to trade three legitimate starters for Derry Ginger was a, just a massive overpay. But, uh, Terry, to his credit, he comes in that first season in Detroit, averages 18 points, uh, six rebounds, a couple of assists, uh, very respectable. It's not what he averaged in Baltimore, uh, but it's still enough to get him into the all-star game. Uh, Probably the best uh, performance, the most notable one that he had, uh, he he had a season-high 33 points in a win uh, against the Lakers. Uh, Dave DeBuscher chipped in with 30. Uh, Elgin Baylor had 47 uh, but it was not enough the pistons still won the game and what happened was we're no longer in the the Korean War uh era we are now in a in the mid-1960s and there's another war in Asia uh, that's starting uh in a place called Vietnam
0: Heath, how and many of your players are drafted into the into the, the military
1: just the <laughs> I'm only doing these two today, all right? This,
0: this is a the theme. Oh my gosh.
1: All right. So so Terry, yeah, Terry Desinger, now he doesn't actually serve in Vietnam. He goes to Hawaii. He he plays basketball. Uh by all by all accounts, he he didn't actually do any fighting, uh but he does serve in the military. Uh he misses a few years and he comes back in 1967. And the Pistons are a totally different team in '67-'68. Uh, they've got Dave Bing now. Uh, Dave DeBusschere is still there, but he's an established star in the league. Uh, they have Eddie Miles, who is an excellent uh, shooting guard. That's replaced. That's coming, and he's replaced Donald. So they really have a lot more weapons than they had to begin with. They don't need him as much, and that really shows. Uh, his his scoring average just plummets. Uh, he's, he only averages about 11 points a game. And from, from that point on, he sticks around with the Pistons, but he's just kind of there. Uh, he, he never again approaches, uh, star status. We end up uh, his final season in Detroit. Uh, one of the most ridiculous coaching carousel, uh, seasons in team history, uh, at, at a certain point, they were without a head coach, and they asked Terry Dischinger to step in and a, be the player coach for two games, which he does, and they lose both of them. And At that point, uh, Terry just wants to quit and play out his contract, so he demands that the Pistons trade him. Now, understand, in the 1970s, there, players have no leverage. Uh, there is no free agency. Uh, if you, A player can ask to be traded, but your only recourse is to play basketball or retire. And here's where the, the twist comes in. Uh, Terry Disginger has recently completed, at that point, had recently completed dental school. And he was actually threatened the uh threatening the Pistons with retiring and going into dentistry, where he probably would have made more money if, if the Pistons didn't trade him, which actually forces uh their hand. They do trade him to the Portland Trail Blazers who were a much worse team than the Pistons at the time, but that's just how badly uh, Terry wanted to get out of Detroit. And that's essentially Terry Dissinger's legacy. Uh, he should never have been a Piston at, at the price that they paid for him. He, it, it, They could not have foreseen him you know, being drafted into the Vietnam War, uh, but at the same time, they, yeah he just kind of sticks around and they they refuse to give up on him until he gives up on them and he uses uh his his dental degree of all things uh, to force his way out
0: yeah i was just gonna gonna bring that up this guy's a genius because he graduated with a a, a bachelor's in chemical engineering and then went back to college and and is a dentist uh yeah he's still alive uh and married to his wife Mary for 50 years, so there you go. But wow, Terry Dissinger actually won a gold medal in the Summer Olympics, too. 1960, yes, he did. There you go. Uh, yeah, all right, that's that is the most knowledge I've had of uh Terry Dissinger in my life. Um, so I have kind of uh, I, my, I have another player. This one, this guy, uh, was actually. Drafted into the Revolutionary War uh, midway through his first stint. <laughs> now, uh, I'm going to go with a guy that every everybody knows this guy. Uh, one of the greatest college basketball players of all time. Christian Leitner. Uh, First round pick was one of the highest, you know, top five pick in the draft. Um, after Shaq, and he'll let you know about it. Uh, but Laettner you know, just to give you guys uh, a a, a wrap on what he was doing. So he spent, he spent uh, the beginning of his career, three and a half years with the Atlanta, or excuse me, with the Minnesota Timberwolves. And um, I think people remember Christian Laettner not being that great in the NBA, but he was actually a pretty decent player, averaged uh, 17 points a game, uh, seven to eight rebounds during that time. Gets picked up uh, by the Atlanta Hawks, or traded to the Atlanta Hawks, rather. And that Hawks team uh, was actually pretty good. And he made an all-star team in 1997. And uh, then he winds up with the Pistons in 1999. And he's only there for 16 games. Um, I don't know if he got hurt that year, Keith. Is, is that what happened?
1: All right. So for some some context, uh, everything you said about Christian Laettner is spot on. Uh, I think he was kind of cursed that he went into the same draft as Shaquille Emil. Even though he was picked third, uh, even though he had a very, very good rookie season, uh, he was not Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, he was not Alonzo Mourning. And those guys dominated the 90s and Leitner was just, you know, very good. So towards the end of his a- Atlanta career, he, he gets upstaged uh, by a rookie by the name of Allen Henderson. And for, for defensive purposes, like th- this is the, a year after Leitner was named an all-star. Henderson just comes in and Lenny Wilkins is starting him over Leitner because he's a little bit better defender, which I thought was kind of ludicrous. And I, the Hawks certainly didn't have the season they had the year before uh, with Henderson in the starting lineup, but that's his decision. So Leitner goes into the, that offseason healthy. Uh, but during the offseason, he participates in you know, a Duke alumni game. Yeah, I mean it's just an open run. It's nothing official, but it's like every other college. You know, the alumni, all the pros, uh, you know, gather at the at their old college gym, and you know they have open runs. And Christian Leitner, uh, from what I heard, you remember those those, um, those shoes back in the '90s uh, that were the scam that they, they were uh, supposed to make you uh, jump higher. They're training. Yeah. Tra- I wanted higher. I wanted
0: them really bad. My parents yeah. didn't buy so them. so they
1: had these. Yeah, they were these really weird. They were like basketball shoes, but they had like platforms on the very front. So you would be all of your weight would be on the front of your feet at all times. And leitner actually was trying to play on those, and tore his uh, up, tore his Achilles like badly. And you know who else was in the gym at that time? Uh, one of his Duke teammates, Grant Hill, his old Duke teammates. So Grant got a first-hand uh, uh, view of Christian Leitner's career essentially imploding before his eyes. So enter the offseason in 1998, uh, the, the Pistons are kind of very acutely aware uh, that Grant Hill's only got two more years left on his contract and that they had just missed the playoffs, and they're panicking. So their move, in my estimation, uh, was to bring in Christian Leitner. Uh, they, they they had the 10th pick in the draft that year. They traded to Portland. It winds up being Bonzi Wells, who was a very, very good uh, player for a while in the league. They trade Bonzi Wells to Portland for a future first-rounder, and then they flip that future first-rounder to Atlanta for Christian Leitner. And I don't think that they realized that Leitner and Grant Hill were not best friends. Uh, they were they were certainly not at odds with each other. They just were you know, they were colleagues. Like Grant and, and Christian did not hang out together, you know, at, it, it, on the campus of Duke University. They they were just they were different types of people. So bringing Leitner in as, as a person did not help the situation at all. And not only that, they brought in the one player that Grant swatched tear his Achilles you know 6 months before that the only thing that saved him was that the lockout happened soon after so he had 6 months to rehab so we we get to the the lockout shortened 50 game season of 1999 and Leitner's obviously he's still rehabbing the Achilles he's far far away from being ready to play uh he comes off the bench uh late in the season the pistons are struggling and for some reason, with Leitner as the eighth or ninth man in the rotation, uh, the Pistons at one point win 13 out of 14 games. They, they just hit an enormous hot streak, and they not only get themselves back into the playoff race, they get themselves all the way back to up to the, the fifth seed. Now, this season is definitely not Leitner's one year, uh, one good year in Detroit. He was coming off the bench. He was uh, not in shape at all. He was hobbled. Uh, but he was in the rotation and he was playing, even though he wasn't starting. I think he only averaged, I think, eight points, three rebounds. Uh, but yeah, the Pistons with him in the lineup, whether I don't know how much credit you give him, but they went thirteen and one at one point with Leitner coming in off the bench. Uh, it was this ridiculous hot streak. So the the Pistons, uh, once you know it, they meet the Hawks in the first round of the playoffs, and it goes to a fifth game. And the sad irony, uh, they, get dist- they, they, they get stabbed uh, in the back by who other uh, than Valley Sports Detroit's own Grant Long, yeah. who, who gave the Pistons uh, 26 reasons why they were not going to advance into the second round of the playoffs. Uh, Grant Long, the guy that the Pistons let go in free agency, the guy that the, the Hawks brought in to replace Christian Leitner after they traded him, Uh, winds up being the the unsung hero the guy that provides that unsung spark for the atlanta hawks and gets them past the pistons and they're eliminated at that point uh 2000 99 2000 would be late uh i would say one good moment in detroit Uh, if you want to cover the numbers
0: on this yeah, well, uh, well, he's the center for uh, the Pistons this year. He plays all 82 games and starts all 82 games. Yeah. It's actually the last time in his career that he would play a full season. Actually, it's the only time, second time, sorry, he that 97 season that he was a, an all-star, he, he played all 82 games. But this was only the second time in his career that he was able to do that. And he averaged uh, 12 points a game and uh, seven rebounds a game. So it was a pretty, pretty decent season. I mean, it's not like a... It it doesn't rival what he did in '97, but in terms of this, in terms of what we know has happened to Leitner, this was a pretty good year, um, and he moves on to Dallas tonight and kind of bounces around the league a little bit, and, and never really is able to get back to to this point. So this was this was basically his last last good season in the league.
1: Yeah, so the, the 2000 Pistons were just a drastically different beast than all of the other Grant Hill teams. They were a. Uh, George Irvin was brought in. Uh, and he brought in that, that old ABA uh, mentality of just outscoring people, and he had Jerry Stackhouse and Grant Hill in the starting lineup. Leitner was a great connective piece. They were one of the fastest teams in the league. They were also one of the most uh, offensively efficient teams in the league. Uh, Leitner did a good job of being a connector. Uh, Hit the occasional wide open 18 footer uh, to relieve pressure off of Grant and Stackhouse. Uh, It it was it was a really really uh, fun season until Grant Hill's ankle failed him and the entire season went in the tubes. And Grant Hill's ankle, uh, Grant Hill's injury, ironically, uh, brought Christian Leitner down with it uh, because without Grant Hill in the lineup, uh, Leitner wasn't nearly as uh, effective, obviously because teams were now coming out and guarding him. Uh, He only averages seven points, five rebounds in the playoffs, uh, with Hill essentially not there. And that that was kind of it. And as soon as Grant Hill left, uh, it was immediate rebuild mode. And uh, Christian Leitner is essentially salary dumped uh, to Dallas for the expiring contracts of Cedric Sabalos, uh, Eric Murdoch, and John Wallace. Uh, that that trio, yeah, yeah, kind of an unceremonious dumping, uh, and you know the the Mavs didn't exactly fall in love with him either because uh, mid season of, of that next year, uh, Leitner gets once again and uh, dumped uh, to Washington uh, in as part of the Juan Howard deal.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh. It, it it's kind of one of those periods that I think everybody sort of wants to forget, but still, you know, he, he had a pretty decent season, pretty good one year, one year wonder for, for the Pistons, for Leitner there. And um, if you haven't seen, I hate Christian Leitner 30 for 30, you know, we always like to recommend docs. I think it's one of the best ones they ever did.
1: So in the, the ultimate irony, uh, Christian Leitner's final season, he joins, if you remember, he joined the Miami heat who already had Shaq and Alonzo Mourning, So they actually had the top three picks in that, that memorable 1992 NBA draft all on the same team. Uh, Leitner's final playoff series was ironically against the Pistons in the 2005 conference finals. Uh, he manages eight points in the first six games uh, gets a DNP coach's decision in the pivotal game, game seven where he watches the Pistons take his team down and advance to the finals.
0: Man. It's one of those things where it's like, uh, I hate when this happens to players. If Christian would have played one more year in Miami, that he would have a ring, but nope, Uh doesn't. Well, I, I, don't, I don't know that he can stomach getting a DNP in a game
1: seven. I, yeah, I that's, think that a little bit too much for his ego.
0: Yeah, that's pretty rough. All right. Keith's next player uh, fought in the Crusades.
1: No. <laughs> so so we oh, alright I've already covered the 1950s uh, and the 1960s I'm going to move on to the 1970s uh, a player that most most of you that, that grew up watching basketball in the 80s knows uh, but you might not know he played for the Pistons uh, it's a uh, small forward by the name of ML Carr ML Carr uh, 6'6 excellent defender uh, not much of a shot creator, but I, I don't want to say he's like he was like Ron Artest uh, because you know Ron was bigger, stronger, had more talent. Uh, but ML Carr was kind of in that in that vein where he would just annoy you and beat you up and and really irritate you. He had that kind of demeanor about him. Uh, ML Carr came in uh, with the well, he he cut his teeth in the ABA actually with the St. Louis Spirits. Uh, when the Spirits folded and the you had the merger into the NBA, he signs with the Detroit Pistons. Has somewhat of a respectable but kind of uh, you know non-eventful existence until the 1979 season, which was the first season under Dick Vitale, and Dick Vitale fell in love with ML Carr. Oh my goodness, uh, he he was he he was uh, Dick Vitale's muse for that season. He could not keep him off the floor. Uh, ML Carr. Just just for uh, some context, M.L. Carr plays averages over 40 minutes a game in 1979 for the Pistons. Uh, it is still, to this day, the 10th most minutes any Piston has ever played in a single season, ever. Uh, what does he do in those 40 minutes? Uh, and he also plays all 82 games. I, I totally forgot about that. Starts all 82 Uh Averages almost 19 points a game. And this is a guy that wasn't really a scorer. Uh, it is a massive increase from any season he's ever had. He leads the league in steals at over two and a half a game. Uh, it is the third most uh, steals in, recorded in Pistons history. And more uh, the most by anybody not, uh, not named Isaiah Thomas. Uh, I would say his uh, most notable game would be uh, he had a season-high 36 points and threw in six steals uh, against Moses Malone and the Rockets. The Pistons won that game, and they didn't win too many. They weren't that good. So he was also named all defense that season.
0: It was it was really
1: just – it was a perfect example of a bad team uh, giving a, a guy that's it's mostly a role player a whole lot of minutes, and he just thrives in those minutes. Like, ML Carr was never going to be – uh, an 80, a 40 minute a game player for, for an NBA champion. He was just, he was good, but he didn't have the, the offensive talent, the, the the gifts for that, but you, you could just, it was fun. Uh, just, just looking at the, what he was able to accomplish, uh, in, in those minutes in that one season. And, of course, uh, after 1979, M.L. Carr becomes a free agent. He leaves. He signs with the Boston Celtics and becomes one of their glue guys to their first two championship teams. Uh, He he is mostly coming off the bench uh, at the end of their rotation, but they use him just like the Pistons did as a a defensive force, as an irritant. Uh, His defining moment uh, is obviously the steal that he had in overtime and game four of the 1984 NBA finals in LA to tie the series up. And that flipped the momentum of the entire series. Uh, And the Celtics came back and won, which I'm sure will be covered in winning time in the, in the season finale. Uh, I I really hope they cast ML Carr. that. that He was just such a character, a very, very charismatic guy on top of being one of those hard work guys that you just love to root for. Also, uh, I want to say ML Carr uh, for the rest of his career finishes uh, his career with the Celtics, and he's also named GM in the mid nineties and actually coaches them for a couple years. He wasn't good at either of those things, but that was his personality. People loved to give him work. Uh, That was that was the uh, what what Boston fans uh, with the Celtics organization thought of ML Carr.
0: Yeah, I always remember. I actually have (laughs) I don't know why I remember this, but I have an ML Carr uh coaching card remember when they used to make co- cards for coaches <clears throat> that's why i yep. always that's what i think of when i think of ml card i don't even think of him as a player i always think of him as a coach because of that card for some reason it's just one of those things that gets locked in your head but all right uh i've got my last player um i know that okay. we both we both had this uh this guy on our list um this guy uh, was part of the Fab Five, so you already know who I'm talking about. It's Chris Weber. Uh, Weber is uh, an interesting situation. He's the, He had always stated throughout his career that he wanted to play for his hometown team. And in 2007, he finally gets that chance. He gets signed in January. Uh, so kind of the season had already been going on. So he only plays uh, 43 games for the Pistons, but he starts 42 of them. And, you know, he's not he's not the Chris Webber that you saw in Sacramento anymore or or Washington or um, not even Philadelphia. He's he scores 11 points a game. It's it's not that not that crazy. He wasn't that, you know, seven point uh, seven rebounds like but he was a, he he worked. He just worked with this team and he was able to help them get to the Eastern Conference finals where we all know what happened. LeBron basically single handedly knocks the Pistons out. And, uh, and yeah, uh, four games to two was a rough, rough, rough series, but Weber, uh, actually, you know, for 43 games was a, was a nice little run for him and, uh, actually wound up retiring the next year.
1: Okay. So yeah, Chris Weber, for some context, uh, everybody knows Chris Weber, five-time all star, five-time all NBA player, uh, one of the best power forwards of his generation hall of famer so Chris Weber, uh, he his relationship with the Pistons really starts in two thousand and one uh, when he became a free agent. and the, the Pistons are seriously it was really between the Pistons and the Kings. Those were the two teams. The Pistons had opened up enough cap space by then, and the Kings, of course, were his team, so, they could go over the cap to resign him, but there were a lot of people that thought he would sign in Detroit uh, because they loved the pairing with him and Ben Wallace, and also Detroit was Chris Webber's hometown. And Chris Webber spurns the Pistons. He's not sold on the, the future that uh, Joe Dumar sold him. Uh, they did have a meeting. He just wasn't impressed enough. He goes back to Sacramento, signs a uh, six-year, I want to say a six-year max deal, and we go from there. So how that goes is, you know, the Kings get, well, they, they, they lose, or you can say they got cheated uh, out of a championship in 2002. We won't get into that. Uh, all I will say about it is make your free throws at home in a game seven and no one, we don't talk about this And anyway. All right, so the very next season, 2003, uh, the Sacramento Kings once again have a golden opportunity uh, to win an NBA championship with the Lakers kind of falling off. And Chris Webber, very sadly, uh, just blows out his knee in game two against the Dallas Mavericks. And that kind of right there ends his uh, time as a superstar. He never came back from it. Uh, He rehabs. uh, He comes back late in the 2004 season. He's still okay, but he's clearly a shell of what he used to be. Uh, he get, he gets throttled by Kevin Garnett in the playoffs. And the following season, the Kings uh, ship him off to the Sixers for Corliss Williamson and Kenny Thomas. Uh, if you can, uh, if you, if you like a gauge on where his trade value was at that time, uh, Corliss Williamson and Kenny Thomas was what Chris Weber went for. And, you know, he, he's okay with the Sixers. They make the playoffs. They get uh, destroyed by the Pistons in the first round. And then the, a couple of seasons later, it's really obviously the end of the run for Chris. Uh, his knees are really giving out. He can't stay in shape like he used to because I'm assuming his knees hurt like hell. So he's at the end of his contract anyway. Uh, the Sixers release him in January so he can go chase a ring. And Wouldn't you know it, the Pistons, uh, having lost Ben Wallace to free agency, had a massive hole at the center position. Uh, They tried to fill it with Nazi Muhammad, who was a good player, but just a terrible, terrible fit for the type of team that the Pistons had. And they, at that point, they were struggling. Uh, They did sign Weber. Uh, Weber came off the the bench, played a few minutes, and a loss to the Jazz. And at that point, they were 21-16. and Uh, They were third in their own division behind the poles and the Cavs. Uh, it was a nightmare start to the season uh, without Ben Wallace for that Pistons team. So I, I want to bring up the record because I, I just want to state just how important he was to that team. He essentially saved that season. Uh, they were 30 and 12 uh, with Chris Weber in the starting lineup uh, from that point on, he was just a seamless. It was almost like Bill Walton with the Celtics where he couldn't move or really move anymore, but he still had—he was still big. He still had uh, enormous hands, some of the best hands in the history of the league. Uh, highly, still a highly intelligent player, one of the best passing power forwards ever. And it was just a, such a perfect fit with he and Rasheed Wallace and Tayshaun and Rip and Chauncey, where he could hit them, uh, cut into the basket, set screens for them, pick and pop with them. They could run any number of combinations. It was such a great fit. And like you said, uh, Weber doesn't average uh, – like he only averaged like 12 points as a starter for the Pistons. It, it wasn't in like seven rebounds. It, it wasn't much. But his on-court impact was so much bigger than that. Uh, another uh, similar situation to Bill Walton was where there were a lot of nights where Weber's knees just weren't allowing him to play and he didn't give you much. Uh, but on the nights where he was feeling it, like he, where his knees weren't bothering him, like you could see the old Chris Weber. Uh, he had uh twenty four eight and six uh, in a game at Seattle. He shot seventy seven percent from the floor. Uh, he had uh, another a uh, twenty and nine at Denver. Shot eighty two percent. He lit up Amari. Just killed Amari Stoudemire in a game they won at Phoenix. Uh, he had uh twenty one and the game winning uh, uh tipping at the buzzer uh, against the Chicago Bulls at home on ABC. Uh, he there were some there were a lot of games where he was much better than his stats. So they go into the playoffs. Uh, he has, like you said, um, some, some games he had it and some games he just didn't. And you could tell almost immediately, uh, that he had, I remember he had one great game against the bulls. He had 22, seven and three shot 90%, <laughs> mainly being guarded by Ben Wallace, uh, in that series. And we go to the part where no Pistons fan, uh, really wants me to talk about, but I'm going to have to that, uh, that game five, that pivotal game five uh, against Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals, Man. which was LeBron James' coming out party. And I want to bring that game up be, uh, because Chris Weber uh, gave his heart and soul in that game. Uh, whatever his legs could give, he gave it. He had 20 points on very high efficiency shooting, seven rebounds. Uh, in, in the game where all of the Pistons struggled shooting the ball, he, he was essentially their best player in that game. And I will always feel bad for him because he he gave everything he had left in that game, and they just couldn't get it done. They couldn't close out the the Cavs. He had a, he had an end one that could have put the game away uh, at the end of I think the fourth quarter or overtime. I can't remember which one. And then LeBron just canceled it out with a three pointer uh, over two people on the next on the very next play. It it was just was not meant to be. And that was essentially it. That game was essentially it for Chris Webber's career. Doesn't really play much at all in, in the game six. He has a fall, kind of a falling out with Flip Saunders, who's trying to encourage everybody after the season had gone down the toilet that they had a great season anyway. And Webber essentially knowing his that was his the end of his career is not was was not feeling it at all. So they kind of got into a shouting match. He had to be restrained. And. The, the Pistons let Weber go. He signs with Golden State the next year, but it's mostly a ceremonial thing because that's where he started his career at, and that was and he retires, uh, doesn't play much at all. Uh, he retires very early on, I think, and that that's Chris Weber's career. But I will always remember that that 2017 with Chris Weber on it. It was so so fun to watch, uh, just the basketball IQ of those five guys on the court, even though they couldn't get it done in the playoffs on the nights where Chris Weber, uh, where he was feeling healthy, uh, they were the best team in the league. I have no doubt about it.
0: Oh man. What could have been, what could have been, had they not run into LeBron in that Eastern conference finals, but, uh, yeah, is, uh, I think that's all we've got for you today. Then, unless you have one more player,
1: I, I have a a couple more, but I, I think we've, we've gone a good probably hour so far. Right.
0: Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, we so we can know. Uh, so I,
1: I will, I will, I will tuck these away in my pocket and save them uh, for next time. I have, I still have a couple of really good ones that I'd like to share. Uh, but we will, we will save that for part two.
0: That Jack molina's man, that's wow! What a story that was. That one should Look,
1: it, it might be boring uh, to think about the NBA of the 1950s and the 1960s, but it really was the Wild West. Uh, There are so many stories uh, of basketball of the NBA back then that would never have been allowed to happen today. And yeah, Jack Molinas is a part of it, but he's honestly a a small part of it. There are so many other stories to tell uh, from that era of basketball. I always find it fascinating to go back and read about it.
0: Well, uh, that's, yeah, that's, that's going to do it for, uh, eventually we'll do that George Yardley episode, but that's going to do it for our one hit wonders part one uh, next week, we're going to be back with the 2013 NBA draft. And Keith, let me tell you, we made a lot of jokes about uh, the 2012 draft when we had Koo on. This is, this is god-awful, man. This might be the worst. I, it's got to be the worst draft we'll ever do.
1: Yeah, I think t- 2013, I think, might be where the NBA draft bottoms out. Uh, I, I have not gone through the entire list yet, but I know it's not very good.
0: Yeah, well, this is Giannis, CJ McCollum, and then uh, Cliff. Uh, We've got guys like uh, uh, Trey Burke, Michael Carter-Williams, Alan Crabb, uh, Shabazz Muhammad. You know, so this is an interesting, Isaiah Cannon. This is going to be a very uh, interesting draft. We'll we'll see uh, where we go with that. We may have a guest. I'm working on getting us one right now. And uh, if we do, we'll announce that on our Twitter in the uh, coming days. But we'll see you guys next week with the 2013 NBA draft.